0: Hello there, I'm D-Ready, and welcome to Inside Intercom. So often on this podcast, we chat with other company CEOs and founders to hear about their successes, their customers, and their cultures. We realise, though, that it's been a while since we chatted to our own in that context. So today's episode is a real treat, as we're hearing our CEO, Karen Peacock, in conversation with one of our founders, Des Trainer, about Intercom itself with reflections on our past, our present, and our future. So, without further ado, let's head over to the studio and hear from Karen and Des. I'd
1: like to welcome you all to this very special episode of Inside Intercom today. We decided to do something a little bit different this week, and today's episode won't be an interview where I interview Des or vice versa, it's just going to be a conversation between the two of us. We're going to be sharing our perspective about intercom and uh, other broader topics as well. Des, thanks very much for joining me today.
2: I'm excited to be here. This is our first podcast together, so this will be fun. I usually do them with Paul or people from the product team, so this is it's much much more fun to be on a podcast with your boss. I, I guess as like you know I've been here quite a long time and you're obviously our CEO, it might be good to talk. I think a lot of our listeners would know plenty about me because my career kind of is intercom. I think you've had an impressive career pre-intercom that maybe folks won't be as familiar with. Perhaps uh, you could just give us a bit of background. Why did we hire you as CEO, basically, is the question.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, um, a little bit, and I'll share a few personal things as well. So I I grew up in the uh, Midwest of the United States in the Chicago area. And I always loved problem solving, finding complicated things and breaking them down into simple pieces and helping people and and building things that made people's lives better. I moved out to the East Coast of the U.S. to go to Harvard, where I majored in applied math with a focus on decision systems and artificial intelligence before it was cool. And let me tell you, it was definitely not at all cool at that time. But it inspired me to, to realize that there are some things that humans are particularly great at doing. And then there's other things that are, that are things that we can automate in ways that, that make people's lives better. After college, I went to work at the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, which was really my first experience in, in business. And so I worked with a whole bunch of companies in um, technology and financial services, consumer goods, really helping them on things like growth strategy, uh, developing new products, um, M&A, I then went to Stanford, moved out to Mm -hmm. California, where I've been for the last uh, 20 plus years. And uh, met my husband, Eric, out
2: here. Did you move to Stanford for the MBA? Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly, for the MBA. I had wanted to be in tech, I mean, because I'd done a bunch of like coding undergrad, a bunch of engineering undergrad. And as tech started to to take off in the kind of mid to to late 90s, I knew that I wanted to be in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley as as a part of all that. And I loved the weather in California. I loved the great skiing in California. So yeah. Stanford was actually the only business mm-hmm. school that I applied to because I specifically wanted to move out to the Bay Area and wanted to, to move into tech full time. And so then awesome. after business school, I did more work in strategy consulting and, then, and realized that I love building things. I love building products, building teams, building companies. And at that time, I was mostly building PowerPoint decks which was not really what I was (laughs) seeking to to be building. And so after a few more years doing that, I left and joined a startup. And that was my first time in enterprise software. I'd spent some time in consumer software before that and did that for a few years. My company was acquired by a bigger company, acquired by a bigger company, et cetera. And uh, I then moved to Intuit, And I worked at Intuit actually for 14 years, never had any plans to be at one company for for that long of a period of time, but I just kept doing new and different things there. So I started in product management and then did a combination of product management and marketing and design, was a general manager of a couple of different businesses, was able to develop and launch from scratch two different new products and businesses and grow those into big thriving businesses today, which is exciting. And I ended up as the SVP of small business at Intuit, where I was responsible for all of Intuit's products and services for small business, like QuickBooks accounting, payroll payments. And during the time I was there, we grew that small business division from about $500 million in revenue to about $2.5 billion in, in revenue. And we grew the company from about $5 billion market cap, which is you know uh, not a small company, to uh, over $50 billion in yeah. market cap. So huge, huge growth during that time. And one of the things that I really took away from all my years at Intuit was spending time with customers. And we would do what we called follow-me homes, where you actually follow a customer, I mean, with their permission. This is not a stalker thing. But follow a customer with their permission. Um, to that was their a place different company. Work, whether, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a different one. To their, uh, to their place of work and, and watch them with what they do, whether that's at home or in the office. Of course, that's a little bit more tricky now. But the whole idea there is to really both hear their comments on your product, but also watch what they do and not just listen to what they say and watch what they do in the context of everything else they've got going on in their world because all of us operate in a deeply interconnected world. So part of what I've always brought with me from that is focus on your customers, watch what they do, not just what they say, but what they actually do and say, and think about things as a whole like Mm -hmm. ecosystem. Think about how your product Integrates in and fits in or doesn't fit in with everything else that people have going on in their life. Same time as doing a bunch of startup advisor works on a board of a a, a private software company. And I was just getting the itch to do something much, much smaller, much more entrepreneurial. And so after 14 years, I was like, you know what? It's time. If not now, then when? And so I I made the leap and uh, started doing a lot more actual advisor work, board work, and got a chance to meet you and owen and kieran and the the rest of the team here along the way i guess i should say um, on the personal side i think i said i met my husband in business school and got two kids my son jack who's 16 my daughter katie who's 13 and that's been really fun during the pandemic i think our biggest point (laughs) of stress has been competition for wi-fi
2: It it would sound like you've gone from like you know a scale where software companies can't really get much bigger, like I know it's not the biggest company on earth, but I'd say like functionally, it probably, there's, there's a point of scale at which it's just multiple tens of thousands of people and it actually doesn't matter. Uh, if, if another hundred thousand show up to do another whole software company, it, it starts to stop affecting you in a sense. But you've obviously come all the way down. Like so I think Intercom was maybe like what four hundred people when you joined.
1: Yeah, we were at just over three hundred. Just over three
2: hundred. So like yeah. you've been kind of it's a, quite a drop, right? Like as in I, I, you probably had like three hundred people reporting to a person who reported to a person who you half knew it into it or something. So <laughs> yeah, like that
1: is true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so what like uh, you know I could guess these answers, but I've never worked in a company larger than Intercom, uh, and that's always been true since Intercom was eleven people or something. What like fueled the desire to go smaller?
1: the differences are in a big company, you have all of the uh, both benefits and costs of the the overhead of the big company. So when you want to bring something to market, you have this like tremendous channel where customers already know who you are and you can just kind of, you know, add another thing in there. But on the other hand, at a small company, you have the opportunity to do things that are unique and different. I think about like, What we did this past summer as in the middle of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. folks were working incredibly hard. We had just launched some tremendous things and we decided to shut down the office for a week and say, everyone, take your normal vacation time, of course. But above and beyond that, we're just going to everybody take a break for a week. That's the kind of thing that's actually very hard to Mm -hmm. do in a Fortune 500 company that is a very possible and exciting and fun to do it at a much smaller place. So you get to do kind of fun and cool things like that in a smaller company. Control your own destiny entirely. It's sort of like um driving like a big yacht versus driving a, a sports car.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and here we are.
1: Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about my background and and leading up to me joining as COO. Would love to hear about your experiences, what was going on in the early days in terms of what you and Owen and Kieran and, and David were doing in terms of building Intercom in those early days?
2: Yeah, I think at the start, Intercom actually, as I think we've said this a few times, it was built actually in, as a feature of another product, believe it or not. Uh, so we didn't like sit down we, we like to do like project Intercom with it on a whiteboard per se. In fact, we weren't even calling it Intercom at the time. We were working together as consultants where we basically designed and built software for other people. So, typically, what that looked like was our best customers at the time were like Silicon Valley startups. And the reason they were best is because the dollar was significantly outperforming the euro. So, we were simultaneously the highest earning consultants in Dublin and, and the cheapest consultants in the valley doing high quality startup work. So, uh, it was like it That's worked. That's a
1: good value prop.
2: It is. It's proper startup arbitrage, I guess. What we used to do is uh, there was also one other benefit which Intercom has kind of uh, lived on to benefit from, which is a uh, the folks based in San Francisco, what would happen is they'd like give a lot of feedback, and then the following, like while they go to bed, the feedback would be acted on, so they'd wake up the following day to a new release of software. And I remember in the early days of Intercom, Owen was in San Francisco, and like every single day was like Christmas for him because he'd wake up to like a new wave of features that like Kieran and Dave had shipped or whatever. So like every single time, he'd like literally refresh the product to be new buttons and stuff appearing all the time, which was really positive. But as I said earlier, we started it because we actually had a different startup that probably like it's fair to say wasn't working so well. You know, it was that whole, you're familiar with that Mark Andreessen idea that like the market's more important than the product. Like is yeah. in if you're, if you're like, a bad product in a great market will do better than a great product in a bad market. And I think for us, we had an idea for a product which was like developer monitoring tools for like specifically for exception handling whenever, whenever anything goes wrong in live production software, it would alert the developers. At the time, that was a really like niche-ish idea because the, like the b2d movement like idea of selling directly to developers hadn't really kicked off so we were kind of like you know charging like nine dollars a month and having to justify why nine you know and nine's a lot of money you know uh it just wasn't it, we were definitely like early we it's also fair to say like neither i nor own nor uh, nor any of us really we didn't have a lot of passion for the area like it was just it was an idea that made sense but it wasn't something we cared a lot about I look today and I see like a lot of different tools in this exact space have gone on to raise like tens of millions of dollars and do a lot better. But it was clear like we were struggling to make it work and we had to consult lot most of the week. So we didn't have a lot of errors to put into it either. The net effect of all this was like we had a kind of business that was like growing, but slowly growing. It clearly wasn't taking off. The nature of the school of thinking that we were following at the time was this, like base camp or like 37 Signals, as they were known, mm-hmm. where you have like a consultancy and you have a side business. And at some point, the side business is out, outpaces the consultancy and then you can stop doing consulting work. So we were very excited about the idea that we could one day stop doing consulting work. And I think what we kind of realized was at some point was like, it just wasn't going, it was going somewhere, but it wasn't going anywhere fast enough. And like I think for, as a side note, a slightly spicy opinion is, I think a lot of the... Um, bootstrap businesses fall into that category where they're growing so you don't want to kill them but they're not growing very fast and the the fear is or at least my fear for folks running those businesses is that like it might take them three and a half years to realize this is never going to be the thing and it, had they have raised half a million quid and tried to blow it up early they would have realized in like six months it wasn't going to be the thing like i think there's a there's this dichotomy that people swing between you know, of like bootstrapping versus venture capital and like the one thing about the bootstrapping choice is you're choosing to invest the years of your life, whether you know it or not. And they're often like the best years of your career. So uh, so I'm, I'm thankful for Owen who made the hard call of like, we need to go all in on something that's definitely going to like happen here. So at the time, we were all based in Dublin. We had this thing called Exceptional. P- people were using it a little bit, but we had no easy way to talk to them. The state of tooling in 2010, 2011 was there was no stripe, there was no like subscription management. The idea of there being a SaaS economy was just nonsense. Okay. So uh, so the way you actually talk to your customers was you export your PayPal dashboard, because that's everyone used PayPal for subscription back then. Uh, you export that, you, you get Kiron to check and, and flag the people who are actually actively using the product because they're the ones you really want to talk to. You import all that into a campaign monitor or a MailChimp or one of those tools. You send out an email and you get a load of like you know, out-of-office replies and shit like that back for all your efforts, right? It was just the most broken system ever. So the, the logo for Exceptional at the time was a little star that sat in the bottom right-hand corner of the product. And one day a little speech bubble popped out of it. And it just basically said, yay, we're the team from Exceptional. What would you like us to work on? And man, like the like the most interesting things happened, which was probably like everyone replying for the first time ever. We were actually talking to our customers, um, which, you know, I've always said, like talking to your customers, as you said earlier, is a really important thing to do. Why the hell is it so hard to do? So yes. we invested so hard in this idea of like, let's make it easy to talk to customers. Which customers? Active ones. What about inactive ones? All right, let's make it easy to talk to them too. You know, We just kind of kept investing in this idea that like, it should be easy to talk to your customers and very quickly as we were building this other idea out inside exceptional exceptional customers started saying this thing's really cool how do i get one of these and that's when we kind of they kind of penny dropped that like um, this is probably a bigger idea than the idea it was sitting in so we sold off exceptional decided to raise i guess a million dollars over like well I-, I went to san francisco to raise money and i stayed behind with kieran and david and we worked on the product and we had to quickly once we had sold our exceptional product we had this new problem, which was we had this tool for gathering user feedback, but we ourselves had no users. So we had to build the other half of the tool, which was <laughs> where everyone else should be using Intercom because all, all all we had was like the, the front end side of it. So we quickly had to build the product out and get uh, get actual users up and running. And we did all this. And I think we, we had our first private launch, I think it was July 1st, 2011. We went to number one on Hacker News, which is like it was a huge deal, I guess. It's, it's like being in the top right of the Gartner quadrant, you know? <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Except for, for cool startups. Uh, I'm, yeah, that's like, you know, I often, startups often make the inverse joke, which is the top right of the Gartner quadrant. It means as much as going number one on Hacker News. So anyway, <laughs> uh, we, we need to do both is the lesson I've learned. But uh, once we went number one on Hacker News, that's when I realized this thing is like every, it wasn't just us because we had some plateauing, startup and we were in Ireland and we should have been in San Francisco it was like every single internet business on earth needs to talk to their customers and there's no tooling to make it possible
1: interesting there's a lot of similarities between that and the intercom founding story and like the slack founding story for example where sort of the the tool within the tool turned out to be the thing that was needed by absolutely everybody and you built it just
2: for your own use Totally, and and I think I think yeah, Yammer was the same, and there's been a few other yeah. examples of it. Even I think like Stripe, like they didn't set out to build payments so much as they set out to try and charge. And when they started to trying to charge, they realized how hard it was to do payments, and they're like, "Well, let's go solve yeah. that," and then we'll come back and come back to this other idea. And I guess we uh, we incorporated in San Francisco I think in August 15th, 2011, and we came out of private beta January to 2012, uh, where we announced that we'd raised a million dollars. That was like a you know complicated raise in that like it was like, there was a lot of people involved in the round because it just wasn't like the you know owned it all the fundraising I, I sat in on like, quite a few of the pitches at the time but like or, or it certainly got the feedback and the most consistent thing was that uh, like people could see the problem but not the category if you know what I mean they're like I, I I can see what you're doing but I don't know are you a help desk or are you a marketing tool or what are you you know that, that was kind of like does this, you know, I, I don't want to be like, you know, some of my best friends are investors and all that, but there's a temptation to like, to pigeonhole startups into like, just tell me the category you're in so I can check a box and say, this is a billion dollar category or whatever. And, and I think we, we at the time, our answer to all these things was just everything. We're going to like, you know, we're the, we're the way businesses and customers are going to talk. And even like you would re- reference, even as recently as our last board meeting, a, a version of this conversation still comes up, which is like, but surely you're not going to do it all. And like, and I, as I said at the time, I was like, We've been 10 years at this trying to avoid this problem, but I think the actual answer might be we just have to basically be a really good communication tool for businesses and customers to talk. And yes, that means we have to be good for targeting marketing messages. And yes, it means we need to be really good at structuring thousands of inbound conversations and doing ticketing workflows and triage and all that sort of stuff. So that was like, you know, once we got the money, it was like immediately get out, set out to start like hiring. And uh, we built out, we were pretty Dublin heavy in terms of our hiring early on because it was, you know, all the money goes into product at the start. And we decided we wanted to consolidate product in Dublin. It was really not until like the Series A that we started thinking about marketing and, and more of say SF based hiring and then later on layered in sales. And if I keep going, I'm going to walk us through the entire company history. But so that's what was going on while you were uh, while you were dominating the world with into it.
1: You are, you are you are creating a whole new category and uh, building something incredible that i think absolutely every company as you said needs to talk to customers and having that that single path that kind of like punched through the wall that the that the internet had set up at least in early days was a was a huge deal. And one of the other things that I think that um, you and the the rest of the founding team did that was so brilliant was to set up a, a durable mission for the company. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the mission for the company and how that has or hasn't changed over the years and, and what that means to you?
2: Yeah, uh, part of the mission uh, was, the idea of a mission was inspired by one of our advisors at the time, which is Paul Adams, who obviously, as you know well, is our SVP of product here at Intercom. I'll say sort of where we started I remember when we had this horribly small office and it was really weird shape it was really long and narrow we had one wall where we put nine whiteboards in a row like and we put them portrait style so you could write out a kind of like a manifesto and we had this like a manifesto we had this like free nearly free office space in a dodgy part of Dublin on the north side and like at the time (laughs) Owen and I were anchoring the whole thing off this idea of relationships in fact some of our earliest customers will know the original intercom shipped with a relationship score that would tell you how strong a relationship you had with the customer based on how much of a back and forth you'd had with them recently. So it could tell you who who you had grown a relationship with and who, who was slipping away. And that, that was one of the ways we were encouraging people to talk to their customers. But the idea was, like, we, you know, why is talking to your customers important? Well, a large part of it is they have a unique insight into what you should do and all that. There's another part of it, which was what drew us in, was this idea of building a relationship, and and the like, another part of the founding story, which I won't repeat because I think it's been covered many times on on our podcast and blog, is like we were working out of a coffee shop at the time, witnessing a barista grow an entire global brand simply one relationship by at a time, literally like to a ludicrous degree, and his company Three FE has gone on to become incredibly successful. So we were anchored on this idea of we need to let internet businesses grow relationships, and why relationships? Well it all comes back to like loyalty like you grow customers by acquiring them and you keep them through loyalty and where does loyalty come from loyalty comes from a strong relationship and where does a strong relationship come from frequent touch points and frequent positive interactions and what do they look like communication and like the antithesis of that would be a business that never talks to its customers in an entirely transactional relationship so uh so so that was where we started we were heavily skewed to this idea of just relationships matter and then as part of like you know being advised by Paul in different areas, and Paul at the time had done a heap of research now kind of famous and infamous, which was about like social networks and how they grow, and I got you know his he will he won't appreciate me saying this, but the deck that he produced was like a leaked and it was like number one on Hacker News and TechCrunch and all that. It was like it was the deck that underpinned the entire strategy for for Google Plus. And then in, to, 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 add, to add fuel to the fire, Paul left for Facebook in the middle of all this. <laughs> so uh, anyway, enough about Paul. Um, however, one of the things he kept saying was like, great companies are mission focused. Yeah. It's not that they have a mission. It's that they're on a mission and the mission is the only thing they talk about. And when we realized well, what, what, what it was we were trying to do was our mission is to make internet business personal. And we've 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 held on to that for ten years, and I really don't see it changing uh, in the near future. Anyway, I, I can't imagine us having to deviate substantially. The challenge with a mission is obviously, as you know well, the, like, there's, you know it, it says a lot about a north star, but it doesn't say anything about how you're going to get there. So like, there's a lot, there's like, a, it, there's a lot left unsaid in such a simple statement. Perhaps the thing that is most interesting to me is I've never, like, I think nearly everyone, nearly everyone I've spoken to about our mission has always suggested that we take the word internet out of it. And In fact, I think we hired some branding agency at one point for like 50 grand to do this really like deep, messy bit of research, all of which concluded, we think your new mission, are you ready? It's to make business personal. And we're like, wrong. (laughs) Because I think the challenge I have is that when you say internet business, you're immediately zooming in in a really useful way that you don't get when you just say business. I think we've always anchored in this idea of we're building for internet businesses uh one of the things we've uh, we, we added to our internal narrative at the time was that in the future all businesses will be internet businesses and and that has like proven to grow more true over time whether it's like i mean covid has only advanced it of course but like even like taxi companies became uber or like bookstores became amazon like but the future of of business in a sense is is 99 percent internet like with the exception of like the tangible like your local coffee store or whatever even them you could argue might have an app you'd order from like starbucks do so um so i think like when i think about the durability of the mission i i, I firmly believe it. like we're here to let businesses and customers connect in a real way like like they do in, in the real world and we're doing it for internet businesses not for anyone and the sense of personal has been really guiding to us from a product perspective because it's why you see faces in intercom
1: i absolutely agree and i think a great mission is it's the kind of the, the horizon that you keep your eye on. And there may be times where you, you know, you tack different ways with the winds or you're up and down with the waves. But that that horizon of where you're aiming toward is what your mission is setting for you. And I think that the, the mission that you developed is one that's evergreen. It's a, it is something that will continue to matter to us
2: more and more each year. I totally. I mean, and I, I remember talking to you at the time when you joined, and you were saying it was one of the things that excited you about the company. What else? Like, I think it was it was like twenty seventeen when when you started us. I'm always curious to know like what it's like as an outsider looking in, because I never, you know, I'll, I'll never be able to like independently, you know, adjudicate Intercom because I'm always going to make excuses for all the warts, and I'm not going to see all the all the thing all the progress we've made. What do they look like to you uh, yeah, I... when you're looking at us?
1: Yeah, the um the first thing that I spent time on with Intercom was the product because I am a product person. I as I talked about before, I care about like solving real problems for for customers, making people's lives better. And the the first time that I saw the Intercom product was literally a lightning bolt moment for me. And I saw both what the product was at that snapshot in time in 2017 and then I had like all of these ideas of of where it could go over time and where it can still go from here. And this huge feeling of, oh my God, this is the product that I have needed in every SaaS business I have ever run. And by then I'd run a lot of different kinds of of SaaS businesses. And so I just saw and felt that customer need firsthand, exactly like you were talking about, a a way to be able to interact with your customers Mm -hmm. in a way that is personalized, contextual, automated when it should be automated, personal like one-on-one when it should be one-on-one, and to connect and build relationships with customers and help them drive their growth. And so that, that was very much the first thing that drew me to Intercom was, was the product and seeing and feeling that customer need firsthand. I was like, I would buy this and I would pay more than $9 a month for it or $9 per developer seat for, <laughs> <laughs> per month for that. Oh, um, yeah. that. That was one part of it. And, and as a part of that, just kind of riffing on the whole developer idea, the fact that all of these things that you could do in Intercom of, talking to your customers in these very personalized ways, setting up these campaigns with A-B testing. All of these were things that you could do without any developer work required, like without any coding skills. A marketer could set it up, a product manager could set it up, anyone could set it up. And I remember in other companies taking literally months and sometimes quarters in the engineering queue of like, yeah, well, this just isn't really as important as this other feature so therefore, we're, we're not going to build out these capabilities and you're not going to mm-hmm. actually be able to interact with customers. And each time I'd have to say, you're right, this other thing is more important. But like, can we just like find a way to be like communicating with customers, onboarding them in a good, strong way? Uh, yeah. and I also knew firsthand that when you interact with a customer that's in a way that's in app, you drive much, much higher engagement rates. And I think we have something like 10x eight to 10x the kind of engagement rates that customers typically Mm -hmm. see with like a marketo email campaign um, when you interact with with customers in product through intercom and i had actually seen that through some things that we had like kind of cobbled together built on our own intercom which weren't nearly as powerful but i knew the kind of 10x uptake rate from an end customer perspective so I, i saw that power firsthand so that was definitely one thing second thing for me was the people. And uh, I have found the people that I got to meet at Intercom to be incredibly smart. And I've known many very smart people in my life and I'm sure you have, and I'm sure all of our uh, listeners have today as well. But it's a much smaller percentage of those folks who I'd also describe as humble and down to earth. And that's exactly what I found the, the Intercom folks who I got to meet to be incredibly smart, brilliant folks, but like humble, down to earth. And that's even in, in part of our values, which is super cool. Another thing about the people is just a, a team with some folks who I consider to be true visionaries. Folks like you, Paul, Owen, others really had a, a true vision for where the industry was going, how products would evolve. And I had so much fun in conversations, riffing on ideas with all of you there. And I'd say it's unusual to have folks who are, have really strong vision. And it's even more unusual to have folks who have very strong vision who are also open-minded. If you think about some of the the strongest visionaries mm-hmm. uh, around like a, a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, I, I don't think anyone would say, oh, you know, the next best thing about Steve was or Elon is like, he really is very open and always wants to get ideas from lots yeah. of different places. And so, <laughs> I, I wanted to be a part of creating and building that vision with others who I felt like had that, that strong sense, but were open-minded and, and wanted others to be a part of that, that creative process. And I think the third reason why I joined was the growth rate, incredible growth, incredible traction in mm-hmm. the market, which was really, in many ways, just a validation of the first two points of like, this is a meaningful market with a important customer problem that we're solving well with some very talented and special people going after that. And so you would expect to see huge traction and huge growth. And and we've continued to see that. I mean, if you think about just in the last couple of years, we now have customers like Amazon, Facebook, Lyft, just brought on mm-hmm. Samsung, Walmart, like incredible traction mm-hmm. that we're continuing to see. So that, that was part of what drew me to Intercom. Mm-hmm. It, maybe the short version is like, I joined for you, Des.
2: Oh, of course. Well, yeah. I mean, I just assume that's true for everyone who joins. Yeah, because uh, they have to put up with me either way, you know. Oftentimes, I talk to people who are considering joining Intercom, and one the one like discussion we have is like, is there still like white space ahead, or uh, is there you know is there still enough risk? Because like with risk comes reward, right? And and with no risk, generally speaking, comes low reward or a very predictable linear reward or whatever. I've I've always sort of felt that like you know we're going to build like multiple new lines of business over the next probably two three years and i say that that's not like a you know this is not an investor relations call or anything but it's just like it's what we do we've done it over the last few years i mean i haven't actually checked this with anyone but i'm, I'm expecting we expect the r&d team to deliver new world-class products otherwise what are we doing right I, I i hope as a company like it has felt like that for you that like the future is probably more exciting than the past like i i specifically i rarely talk about the past in intercom because i don't want to be you know, like one of those sports fans whose team last won a trophy like 20 years ago and they won't shut the hell up about it? Like for me, yep. like the, the reason I'm in Intercom and I love Intercom is because of what we're going to do, not what we have done. What we have done is maybe evidence of a bit of trajectory or like a, I heard like Patrick Hollison reference for Stripe. He said like they've recorded a, a good, uh, in the marathon they're running, they've recorded a good a good time at the first mile. And like, uh, you know, I don't want to totally copy his phrase, but certainly I only look backward to remind us that we're moving fast and we're making things. But I really spend most of my time looking forward. How did it feel like you, like, you know, from your point of view, was there enough attractive risk, edge, uncertainty in the business to make it exciting?
1: Absolutely. And and there, there still is today. And when I joined some of the things on my mind in terms of like, yes, we've done these things, but we haven't even yet done any kind of investment in automation, haven't even built yeah. out any kind of like app ecosystem or deep yeah. integrations. And over the last three years, those have been two areas that we've gone a lot deeper in. Mm-hmm going forward, one of the the areas that I'm particularly excited about is all the work that we're doing to make intercom great for upmarket companies. Mm-hmm. So all those companies that I was just talking about, Amazon, Facebook, Lyft, et cetera, we haven't even been focused on <laughs> selling to yeah. um, enterprise customers. We don't actually even have like a, a full enterprise motion in, in all that we've been doing. And we're already getting all these kinds of customers in. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just tells me like, holy shit, like what's going to happen when we're actually fully aligned against that, which we are. And, you know, over the course of the last mm-hmm. year and a half, we've done a series of of investments up market and literally every single thing that we have tried has massively beaten our expectations, mm-hmm. even in the middle of COVID. The fact that we were beating every single one of our pre-COVID sales goals is is incredible. And it just, it tells me there's so much more upside there. I think also, as I think specifically from like a, uh, what problems are we solving for our customers perspective? You and I have both been spending a lot more time thinking about customer support and how our customers support their customers. And just realizing in all of our own consumer experiences um, and even business experiences, how broken customer support is today. Mm-hmm. And so the way companies do customer support, like the tools and technology they have today, is you know was awesome and cutting edge 10 years ago. And for the last 10 years, companies have had to choose between do you want an efficient enterprise-grade system or a mm-hmm. easy-to-use consumer-grade front-end? So consumer-grade front-end, enterprise-grade back-end, you have to choose one or the other. Mm -hmm. And that's just not a good spot to be in. And one of the things that I'm so excited about that you and your teams have been focused on is building out that enterprise-grade back-end, advanced ticketing workflows to handle complex queries, advanced Mm -hmm. reporting, ability to tie those into other... external reporting tools, et cetera, so that we are fully reinventing customer support and the way that our customers can support their customers so that they no longer have to choose between what's easy to use for their customers and a great backend that's efficient. And we're seeing huge, huge traction and success there. Folks like Samsung using us for that, VMware using us for that. And so I think like, That is just just the beginning, because, you know, historically, we'd seen a lot of companies use intercom as like a side by side tool. Now intercom can become your primary support tool, even for larger companies. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is like just one example of the kind of white space that we have ahead and the kind of reinvention that we're doing. That's an entire category that that we are reinventing. So I very much believe that the future is brighter than the past and way, way, way more interesting than than the past and something that we will be reinventing in multiple different ways. And that's kind of what, what gets me excited in the morning.
2: The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned 2020 there. It's It's been a fun year.
1: Yes, it has. I was just thinking like we should talk about 2020, the pandemic. So as a founder, how do you think Intercom has been doing this year? How well have we been doing in terms of retaining and building on what's important to us as a company Through the pandemic through massive social unrest how would you describe how it's all going
2: I mean it's been like a a tough year there's no um I don't don't think any company even like you could like literally be sending be selling like Purell the like antiseptic hand gel I think everyone has struggled this year even even if you are exploding for all sorts of positive COVID reasons I guess I think at times when like the company gets like you know shook with with some like news new competitor like you know whatever like st- stuff can go wrong uh, internally or externally all the time in any business like this you know the question you, you always come back to is like is a well how do we react and that's in a sense that's why any company has values like that's it's because they tell you what to do like there's like a, the values are like an agreed sense of how we'll behave under all times it's like you don't get to pick and choose your values don't only apply during good times they apply all times and for us like The things we moved to immediately was, I felt good about, which was like, you know, what we'll do right by our staff. We were like way ahead of of anyone in terms of, in terms of first of all, looking out for safety of staff by closing all our offices before it was like, before it was required anywhere. We also immediately uh, kicked off like ways to make it more comfortable for people to work from home. We said about having to change, like, you know, it's like people externally think a company, uh, they have a 600 person company, That build software where your default pattern is like let's get together in a room with whiteboards and post-it notes and like plan out things they just think like oh well a zoom call is a perfect substitute like that's like nonsense i think you've never built software if you think like that you know putting six people on on a zoom call is the equivalent of six people working together i think we had to make some pretty aggressive moves in terms of like all right everyone's going to work remotely and we're going to have to figure this out we're going to have to invest in the right tools we like we had like, you know, teams working on how do we get everyone set up to work well from home? How do we find all the new sets of tools we need? Like what's our equivalent of a whiteboard? It turns out it's a company called Miro, you know, like but we have to just keep chasing these things down so that we could, you know, be productive while at the same time carrying a different message to our staff, which was none of us have ever been through a pandemic before. All your kids are home from school. Uh, you know, your husband or your wife is also trying to work alongside you. You know, it's like it's going to be a mess. I mean, even the fact that I'm in this room as a result of the fact that my wife's actually on a call in the other room, and that's why we had to change in case anyone notices the lack of video continuity. Pandemic is, is a mess. And, and I think what, you know, the things I think we've done well have been consistently spoken to all our employees to hear what we could do and react. And any simple changes we can make, we've been making them. Any complex changes we've been making, we're looking into and we'll get there. And then like from a, from a business perspective, as you said, like, you know, we have, you know, continued to perform. We've continued to ship software, like which probably like the thing I've been most proudest of, like uh of the entire, at least you know from my side R and D, but but across the company because like product doesn't matter unless it's sold and marketed, has been like I think genuinely two, if not like three of our best ever releases have happened in this period, which is like incredible, really. I I think for a lot of people, you know, how Intercom behaved definitely I think informed how our team behaved and. I think uh, they saw us make necessary changes and the right changes to like to set us up so that we could continue to to survive if not thrive. And I think they did likewise. And now it feels very natural for like us to have a remote all hands or even things like our our weekly rituals where I would have argued to my dying breath something like show and tell that we do on Fridays where all the product teams demonstrate what they've released. We've just moved that online and we've replaced rounds of applause with rounds of emoji reaction in Slack and. And like people still grab a beer in Dublin anyway. I hope not in San Francisco. It's 9 a.m. But um although well, no, I wouldn't judge. Um but like I think we've just seen people work out, like there's a sense of we're in this together. We might come out the far side, we might not. We we need to not make temporary hacky solutions. We're gonna be at this for you know a long time. So let's make the most of it. And and it's just blown me away how how consistently impressive our team have been throughout the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly right. What has life been like for you personally uh, during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic?
2: I think boring is the best. Like, I I know I'm supposed to put a brave (laughs) face and be like, oh, well, you know, we all worked it out. Like, I did not realize how many natural breakups I have in like, uh, not, not relationship breakups, but like interruptions that are warm, welcomed. Like I have not been in San Francisco this year. And this will be the first time since 2006 that I haven't been in San Francisco in a year, which is just crazy. But but more than that, I haven't been anywhere, you know, I literally haven't been anywhere, like, it's, like, my wedding anniversary on Wednesday, and we're driving a whole hour away to go to a hotel in Dublin, like, in the countryside, but, like, and, like, and we might not even do that, you know, that's, like, you know, the the extremes of it, so, like, weekends and weeks kind of blur in together, I try to do things every, every Saturday where we, like, get in a nice meal, and we'll, like, you know i might get some family over and we might dress up like to, to just to not for any reason like but like just put on clothes like as if you're going out to a restaurant because otherwise <laughs> we're just going to live in our fucking pajamas you know like <laughs> exactly. and so like i've I've been trying all these different i've like, started playing guitar again i've like you know invested a lot of time in researching new cocktails to drink but yeah i i can't like would not recommend like i would not be was, you're not going to see me give a pandemic a five-star review on yelp i am not a fan <laughs> Uh, I hope yeah. it ends I hope it ends peacefully. I hope we find a vaccine. I hope all sorts of like uh, positives come out of the far side of it, but I can't say I've been enjoying it.
1: yeah, fair enough. Like one of the things that's also been very much on my mind is around diversity, equity, inclusion, and all the the social unrest has just kind of yeah. shined a light on things that were always there but were have now been kind of more brought to the surface and I've been just thinking a lot about the fact that as an industry in tech, we haven't done enough here in the past, and uh, this is something that I've been really thinking about, educating myself on. One of the the most meaningful books that I've read during the pandemic is How to Be an Anti-Racist, and the aha for me during for from that book and in a number of other conversations is just I had always thought in the past that it was enough to be kind and open and supportive of all different types of people and like just looking for the best ideas and trying to bring out the best in everyone has always been kind of a a life mantra of mine. Like I'm more interested in hearing what other people have to say. I already know my own opinion. I'm, I'm interested in like, how can I bring out the the best in, in others around me? And what I've realized is that alone is not enough. And if you don't act in ways that are actively anti-racist, you are actually supporting the status quo. And that was a huge aha for me. And so, you know, we as a company have been doing more, building new partnerships with diverse communities and focusing more and more of our outreach on diverse talent so that we bring in lots of different types of people. Having more diversity in our interview panels and really looking for like, who's the best candidate who can help us grow as a business and, and a company and do all the things we want to do and have like different types of, of thoughts and ideas to, to bring to the table. And we've also been investing a lot around uh, training in allyship and in our employee resource groups. We've just added three more employee resource groups. And I think that's a pretty big deal. I've been, I've been super impressed with like our allyship training. I think the very first one of those we had out of a company of 600 people, over 300 people sign up to come. This is, you know, an optional thing. It wasn't a required training in the very first round. And then we had hundreds more come over the, the round since then. So one of the things I love about Intercom is it's a company that really cares about people and cares about helping each other and, and aiming to bring out the best in each other. So there's a lot more that that we are committed to doing here, but we're starting to take some first steps and, you know, more work to do, but something that we're very much committed to.
2: Yeah, it's it's been, um, I think, an important period for the company in that regard. I know I definitely had to spend a lot of time kind of, uh, I, the best way to say i describe it is like educating myself in, in a manner as you described. And I think the one area that really like resonated with me was basically what you said. It's easy to initially misunderstand things as, as being like, if I'm not doing anything wrong, then I'm not doing anything wrong, right? And then I think we all believe that to be true, but then history is littered with examples of people who didn't do anything wrong, but it turns out did a lot of things wrong. And I realized then like that, like, it's not about what you do or what you don't do. It's about, do you fight for what you think to be the right outcome is in any situation? And if you're not doing it, then at the very least, regardless of words like being complicit or whatever, at the very least, you have to acknowledge yourself, given the chance, I didn't fight for the right outcome in that situation. And when you when you realize that, 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 it's yourself who you have to justify that to for the rest of your life. Like whatever about like any particular third party or independent movement, it's like it's can you live with the decisions you make and are you proud of the person you are in, in situations that are trying and situations that are hard? Where like the easier thing to do is to do nothing. The harder thing might be to do a lot and it might take a lot out of you. But the question is like what sort of person are you? I think when people ask themselves that question, I think it it taps into them in a way that is much deeper than like the more standard approach of, well, as long as we're good, you know, then everything should be fine. Because like the reality is that's not, the world doesn't work like that. And I think that if there's one thing that maybe the pandemic did give me, was a kind of a clearer mindset on that whole area.
1: I think that's exactly right.
2: Maybe let's think about something perhaps more positive in the future. I think when, when you think about Intercom in 2020 and beyond and the years to come, were I an analyst, I'd be like, "So, Karen, tell us when's the IPO, all that sort of stuff." I'm not going to ask those questions. But when is the IPO? No, yes, <laughs> no, exactly. I'm, I'm, and this, I'm, this is I'm, where
1: you need one of those one of those caveats of like forward looking statements cannot yeah. be uh, guaranteed or or, or yeah, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah, past revenue is not indicative of future revenue, etc. Yeah. In terms of future plans, what are you excited about? You mentioned upmarket and just kind of the, like for me, the thing that's exciting about upmarket uh, beyond obviously the implications for Intercom and, and tapping into like these uh, larger customers is something that clicked with me ages ago is when Microsoft signed up as a customer. And I realized like, you know, I was having a discussion internally and someone was like, well, like, you know, Microsoft, there's still just one customer. And I was like, no, a different way to think about this is conversation by conversation. We're going to make internet business personal. And we've just landed a business that has a lot of conversations. Same as Amazon or Walmart or whatever, right? And I think like it, it is firmly in our mission to make internet business personal. And it's impossible to do it without getting these larger folks who have probably the majority of the conversations on side. You know, when you think about the coming years, independent of you know how Intercom might approach a public market situation... What are your future plans and hopes for Intercom, both in terms like the business, the product, the culture, et cetera?
1: So as I think about the, the future for us, I think exactly as you said, it comes back to our mission of making internet personal and doing that at scale. I mean, today we already have 500 million conversations happening on the Intercom platform between Intercom customers and their customers. And then you start to add on some of these these larger customers who've more recently joined, like an Amazon or Facebook or a um, Walmart, et cetera. Um, And we start to see that opportunity 10X. I see Intercom Mm -hmm. in the future becoming a consumer brand, the type of place where if you work at Intercom, your parents, your brother-in-law, they know what you do. And that's unusual for a B2B software company. Mm -hmm. A consumer brand where... We help companies help their customers and be a brand where customers want to work with companies that use intercom because they know that that signifies that they care about their customers, that they're going to give them the kind of high quality service, the high mm-hmm. quality engagement. So becoming a, an end customer brand and a company that's known for connecting with customers, something that you know your brother-in-law will know, as I said, and truly reinventing categories. Mm-hmm. If you think about what Salesforce did to CRM, creating CRM, reinventing it in the cloud, I see Intercom doing exactly that for customer interaction, specifically for customer support, helping companies support their customers and customer engagement, helping com- companies engage with their customers. You talked a little bit about like the in-app ways of engaging with customers. In-app, email, push notification, omni-channel, things like that. Intercom will have fully developed every way that a company can interact with its customers and be doing that in a way that is personal, automated, proactive. One of the things that we just recently launched um, that I'm super excited about is our customer support funnel and the new way of conversational support, next generation support, which is rather than a world where when you have a problem, you reach out. Like I go to the dentist when my tooth hurts. and, And yeah, that is sometimes true for me. Getting mm-hmm. to a world where you're actually proactive. Go to the doctor or the dentist before your tooth hurts or before you've had a, you know, whatever big problem that you have. Companies don't ever really do proactive support. This is a new thing. But imagine if before mm-hmm. you had a problem, a company that you bought a piece of software from was helping to onboard you, anticipating what your problems were. That kind of concierge level service to help our customers' customers be successful, nobody does that today. So proactive support automated support. And this is really kind of the whole idea that not every question needs to be answered by a human being. Like what are your store hours? It's not something that a person needs to answer. And one of the areas I'm really excited about is continuing to double down in automation. Already today, we're finding that 33% of our customers most frequently asked questions, we can answer in an automated way. So that's just taking 33% of conversations and cost out of the out of the picture to begin with. And that's now time that you can spend with customers in ways that are um, proactive or high personal touch on things that really matter versus what are what are your store hours. And the last phase of that, of course, is human support, because there will always be a role for human support, but getting the right conversation and the right customer to the right agent at the right speed with the right background knowledge with the right context with the right ability to handle all the, the complexity behind that the right routing the right If it's a bug, getting it to the right developer, et cetera. And so I'm I'm super excited about reinventing customer support in a fundamental way, taking it from reactive to proactive, taking it from manual to automated where that makes sense, taking it from not consumer-friendly and clunky to consumer-grade app level. So that's some of the types of things I'm excited about. What what are you excited about for the future?
2: I think... I spend so much of my time obviously in the product org. So it's not that I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm so deeply immersed in the areas of, say, of like the conversational support funnel, plus everything we're doing in the engaged side of the house where we're like, say, series. And even I, I don't know when we're releasing this, so I can't say, but we have a cool launch coming out on October 28th. That's all I can say, I guess. But um, so, like, I, I'm kind of like, you know, a, a recurring source of fuel for energy for me is just building software and showing it to users and seeing them respond you know, that keeps me excited like literally every part of the year. When I think about it on the longer time horizon, I definitely am excited about becoming a much more of a, um, how would you say, like primary tool for for large, significant industries. So I know we have a lot of like great customers there, but there's a lot more and who want to use us for whom we're like just one feature shy and it's never an exciting feature. It's not like a differentiator. It's It's something simple like, I'll tell you the most embarrassing one I, I had recently was somebody was all excited to use the intercom and they wanted to onboard their 145 person support team. And of course, us being a scrappy startup from startup land, despite like, you know, us, you know being six or seven years old, the way you onboard a person to your support team is you fill out the form for one person at a time, which obviously is a very laborious thing to do when you're trying to add 145 accounts in the same day. It would basically take your entire day to do it. And the person like, uh, giving us the benefit of the doubt very humbly asked, hey, just sorry, I can't find your bulk import screen. And I was like, ah, yes, the bulk import screen, I know it well. <laughs> One second while I dig that out for you. Uh, and I had to run around behind the scenes. I was like, you know, our bulk, yeah, exactly. Our bulk import screen is a little busy right now. If you could just give me a CSV, I'll, uh, I'll make sure that they get into the tool. Don't worry. But like that, like that exchange was really uh, exciting to me because I was like, shit, That's the sort of, you know, that's the level of complexity that has us not penetrating the the Fortune 500. It's not like if only we had an offering. You know, one friend who works in a Fortune 50 company said to me, he's like, he said literally like, I have all the reasons in the world why I want to buy Intercom, you just need to build for me the reasons why I can. And that like was really exciting to me because it made it very clear like, yes we need to add a few features to uh, integration with this or we need to make it possible to like merge tags by the api or something like that but like it's it's a known quantity of tactical things and i just when i look at it at, at the, that set of features which you know generally speaking they come to our sales team they're called like our closed lost reasons for product it's one of those you know there's a hundred dials and if we move them all by one we're gonna like be like 100x you know the company so when I think about the next two or three years, now that we have a really good process for kind of imbibing these things and like really getting a concrete release out that totally nails the reason, and then seeing the customer sign up on the far side and knowing that like that that's a really healthy sort of OODA loop, like it's, it, it, it consumes its own feedback and it iterates real quickly and it, and it ships. And watching that flow over the last, you know, even like as recently as the last, say, two cycles, so one quarter seeing the momentum that's being built there is really exciting because i i think about like in two years time what will that look like and it will be a beast and like we'll be able to like you know there won't be a company on earth that we who for whom we're not adaptable so i'm right that's definitely a thing that really excites me it's perhaps i know i'm supposed to say well it's actually it's our augmented reality feature car and that's what i'm really excited about but honestly like it's for me (laughs) it's when i think about the idea that we can genuinely the biggest companies in the world. They, they want to use Intercom, they'll be able to use Intercom and they'll run on Intercom. That's like, it starts to become like, huh, the mission starts to start looking like it could come true. You
1: know? That's exactly right. One of the things that I am so impressed with with the team at Intercom is the pace of shipping. I think Intercom ships product faster than and at higher quality levels, both in terms of like, you know, bug quality, but in terms of like product market fit in terms of what people actually need faster than really most any other company around. And and I think that's a real advantage and and getting that right feedback loop in place makes the the future very bright. Like in the years that I've been here, I don't think we've ever pushed a release date by more than like a week, which I've just never seen in, in any business before. And we take on these big, audacious goals. And for somebody who's working inside of, of R&D, I think that's incredibly exciting to be a part of like such a high-functioning team that's just delivering like month after month, quarter after quarter, amazing things to customers and, and to be around like top-notch colleagues doing that. It's incredibly exciting. And I think about then, if you're not in R&D, that's even better. Because there's nothing better than being a marketer with like a lot of awesome stuff to get to talk about. So that's always one of the things that, uh, that makes me uh, particularly excited. So let me uh, ask you one last question, which is, if you, Des, were giving advice to somebody who's joining Intercom right now, what would that be?
2: Intercom is made up of like two or three pretty hardened decisions. Our mission is to make internet business personal. We build software. I nearly stopped there, but like you could possibly (laughs) say we have a target customer that we're trying to build them for everything else about us is malleable and we're open to push we're open to questions about why certain things aren't good, like learn what doesn't work and fix it, learn what isn't working well enough and make it better, you know, there are things that we are still learning and we want great people who can teach us more or even just who poke holes in areas where we have been uh, turning a blind eye or whatever like there is so much to improve about this company and there's so much yet to be written about the company so my advice to somebody if, if they want to get on my on my good side anyway is please join and tell us how we can be great because like we like, you know there's lots of good things we can point at. but like one intercom value is confident yet humble i'm confident we will be a fantastic company i'm also humble enough to say that i don't see fantasticness ever i look all the time and welcome to intercom i hope you can help
1: I think that's great and right on. And to me, that's super exciting and inspiring. Like I don't wanna be in a place where everything's all written and I'm just kind of following the rules along the way. I think if I were to give one piece of advice, I'd say, spend time with customers, really get to deeply understand their world, their challenges, their priorities, the other tools and things that they work with, figure that out and understand that firsthand and use that to help us get better and to better deliver value for customers to better solve important problems in a way that's right for them. Thinking about the end-to-end customer experience, and this is not just for people in R&D, like people in marketing and finance, on our people team, on our sales team. Think about what is that end-to-end experience that you wanna have for your customers and how we can make that amazing. Because I very much believe that when you delight your customers, when you deliver great value and you keep raising the bar for yourself and how well you do that and keep reinventing things, great things happen.
2: Awesome. Well, hey, this has been fun. We should we should
0: do it again sometime. I'd love to do that. Take care, everyone. Have a good day. Cool. go. Cool. We hope you enjoyed Des and Karen's conversation. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people like you find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with the first of a new four-part series for Inside Intercom called Shop. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.